You're listening to a special series of Between Two Flags for UNA Canada's Green Corps program. Through regular podcasts, Green Corps will invite a wide range of experts to discuss complex environmental, economic, and social issues. Live tweet as you listen with hashtag Between Two Flags. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's session of Between Two Flags. From UNA Canada, you have myself, Gunjin, and Benita speaking. Um, <laughs> My name is Benita. Um, and uh, we actually have the pleasure of having Jessica Kadeski um, as a guest on the show this week. Um, Jessica Kadeski is a alum of the International Development and Diplomacy Internship Program. And she was posted to UNICEF, um, particularly the Department of the Emergency Programs in New York uh, in the year 2006-2007. Jessica is a humanitarian aid worker who has worked with the United Nations, the Red Cross, uh, Red Crescent Movement, and international local non-government organizations. Uh, She's also a gender and violence prevention specialist and has worked on projects and operations focusing on reducing risks of violence and including perspectives of men, women, girls, and boys in humanitarian assistance in disaster and post-disaster contexts, including the crisis in Syria and neighboring countries, as well as the 2015 Nepal earthquake. She has worked in Cambodia, Central African Republic, Liberia, Haiti, Nepal, Lebanon, and other countries in the Middle East. Since returning home to Canada in 2014, she has led research for the Red Cross on the challenges of accessing healthcare during armed conflict. She continues to work with the Swedish Red Cross on a project that seeks to understand experiences of local Red Cross and Red Crescent volunteers working in conflicts and emergencies, particularly in Honduras, Ukraine, Myanmar, Afghanistan, Sudan, and South Sudan. Jessica is currently in her second year as a PhD candidate in international development at the University of Ottawa, where her research looks at how post-conflict aid programming has impacted long-term gender equality in Sri Lanka. Jessica holds a Bachelor of Arts in International Development from the University of Guelph and a Master of Arts in Gender and Development from the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. Jessica, welcome. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, as we were reading your bio, we just uh, we were discussing Benita and I about how amazing an experience you've had, and uh, I'm sure you're. I'm sure the listeners are very excited to um, hear more about your experience. Oh, it's so much. It's such my pleasure. Thank you so much again for the opportunity, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have. Some great questions have come in, and I'm looking forward to chatting with you about them. Yeah, we're we're great. Uh, maybe with that we can get started. Um, yeah. So. Uh, from your background, uh, you are a former uh, IDIP alum, a program that was uh, funded by UNA Canada. So what steps did you take to pursue your career in international development and particularly in the humanitarian field? Well, I have to first say, I think we talked about this a little bit before we started rolling, that I think that my uh, participation in that program was 100% a game changer. So I have to first and foremost say thanks to UNA Canada. Um, being posted to UNICEF in New York was something that I just would never have been able to do on my own. Um, the people you meet, the, you, you know, you're, you're literally where policy, practice, theory, conflict, everything comes together there. Um, so I had no idea at the time that I was about to embark on such an adventure. Um, I was actually disappointed when I was assigned to go to New York. 
I thought that in order for me to become a quote-unquote real field humanitarian expert, I needed to start the clock on gaining field experience. I needed to be posted to the Sudans and the, the Afghanistans. I needed to just be in the field and start uh, accumulating time so I could apply for these jobs that ask for three to five years experience in the field. But I had no idea that once I arrived in New York, I was going to be sent to the Security Council to take notes or go to the General Assembly and hear Hugo Chavez talk about George Bush smelling like sulfur. And so, you know, these kinds of experiences are just absolutely priceless. Um, and I count myself to be amongst the most fortunate. Um, that's not extremely useful in terms of what, how, how I leverage that. Um, so I'll just say that I think uh, for me, the number one thing was six months in New York in UNICEF was not a whole lot of time, but I tried my best to uh, be in different rooms with different people as much as I could. Of course, as a 26-year-old intern, I mean, that wasn't always up to me. Um, but I tried really hard to learn what I could from who was around. So I'd ask a lot of questions. Um, also, there were a lot of things that I didn't know about what was going on in the world. I didn't even know the Central African Republic was a country. And this is a real embarrassing fact. Um, so to learn about uh, different conflicts around the world, to be working alongside and supporting the people who are, you know, supporting the field operations to respond to those emergencies, that was, that was just huge. Um, so for me, my motivation, what I really wanted to do afterwards was get my hands dirty, in quotes. Um, I really wanted to leave sort of the, the headquarters, capital city kind of donor capital uh, area, and I wanted to get into the field and see what it looked like once you get down into the weeds. Um, so for me, after I finished my six months, I applied to, I want to say, between 40 and 45 jobs. Wow. It was not easy. Yeah. Because, again, I didn't have the field experience. I had my degrees and I had this great six-month internship. But what could I really prove that I'd done? And what was my worth? What was my value? Um, so, fortunately, I um, was able to leverage one of my contacts, actually my boss at UNICEF. Um, and I think that really helped put my application forward for uh, the job that I eventually got in the Central African Republic with UNICEF. And again, I would never have been, uh, my CV never would have been picked up had I not had my, my UNA uh, Canada supported internship on there. Um, and it was just, it was just a bit serendipitous. Um, it's a French speaking country. At the time I spoke very poor public school core French. Um, but luckily the representative of UNICEF in that country at the time wasn't himself an Anglophone and was, I think, a bit more comfortable working with another Anglophone, and that job didn't uh, require so much French on the day-to-day -day, um, in terms of writing and, and communicating. Um, and yeah, I guess he saw something in me, and so he snapped me up, and a month later I was on a plane to a country six months before I'd never heard of. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like an amazing journey for sure. Um, and honestly, don't feel embarrassed because I think we've all been there when we've heard of a city or country or when we hear of a city or country, we're like, what? That place exists. So <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, I, or maybe it's just me and you in this world. I don't know. Um, but I've been there for sure. So don't feel alone. Um, I guess that will segue into our questions um, relating around post-conflict um, post conflict aid. Um, so do you think that foreign aid acts as an empowering tool or is it a crutch for a country's development? Well, it's such a good question. It's definitely something that I've struggled with. Um, working in the field and seeing how aid is distributed and which countries, which programs, which organizations get funded and which don't, it oftentimes doesn't square with the needs that you see. Um, sometimes you see local NGOs doing amazing work on these shoestring budgets. I mean, 
when I was in Haiti, the, the feminist movement in Haiti is very, very strong. And you have a lot of local NGOs who started from nothing and who have, you know, sustained themselves on uh, piddly grants from, you know, embassies, one-off kind of things, or they, they do their own fundraising. And then you see other organizations just getting tons and tons of money, especially, you know, after the earthquake when, when Haiti was all over the news. And of course, a lot of foreign money came through. Um, and so you sort of question, you know, why, why are some agencies, why are some programs getting funded and some aren't? And I don't have the perfect answer to that, but I think a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, uh, priorities. It has to do with, you know, what's important for different donor countries. I think we're going to talk a bit about Canada's role in terms of post-conflict development and, and gender equality promotion a bit later. Um, and certainly these kinds of things that line up with the domestic agenda really um, oftentimes get translated into into where money goes in the field. Now, whether or not that's a crutch, hmm, this is also a really interesting aspect of the question. I think sometimes we have a tendency to, I think, I think a couple of years ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, we, all, we thought that money was the answer, that dumping a whole ton of money in a country would just solve development. It would solve poverty. It would make everybody, you know, rise above whatever poverty line we artificially developed. And I think we've learned many lessons since, you know, the 1980s style of development. And I think now there's much more of a push around sustainability with the sustainability, uh, the, the, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals of 2015. Um, and I think that there's a lot more awareness and learning. I, I think that certainly foreign aid can become harmful when it's co-opted or when it's politicized, when it's used for purposes that it's not intended to, when it's used to advance um, geopolitics rather than help those that are in need. But I think overall what I've seen is that there's still very much a need for foreign investment, for foreign aid, and for foreign funding at the moment. All right. Very interesting. Um, so what do you think then is the most effect effective management strategy in terms of aid programming? for post-conflict rehabilitation, say at the local level, and then perhaps mm. at the national level? Yeah, it reminds me of, of the principles that I, I, I definitely see and I've learned when I've worked for organizations like the UN and certainly the Red Cross, Red Crescent, which is you know, founded on, on the seven fundamental principles. And I think when we go back to those, we can sort of understand this a little bit better. What is the best way to go forward? How, what is the best way to support development? And I think when we're thinking about local populations, we have to think about ownership. Development shouldn't be, it can't be, an enterprise that's foreign imposed or that's developed in Ottawa or DC or London and then is deployed in several countries that have nothing to do with each other. They have to be really context specific. They have to be locally driven, not just locally owned, but driven and asked. And there has to be a, a demand that's been expressed by local people. Now, what do I mean by local people? That's a whole entire other conversation. Um, it could be at the governmental level, and maybe that reflects to different degrees what the people on the ground in X village or X city is actually thinking or feeling or needing. Um, but overall, I think, I think the aid industry in general has done a lot better in recent years of placing the focus on, uh, on, on the local context. And so that's very encouraging for me, um, this ownership piece. I think also going back to sustainability, and I know, Benita, you're an expert in sustainability, um, I think we need to think about aid projects as going beyond just the three to five year funding cycles that we often see. Um, and even that sometimes is a luxury. I know I worked on a project in the CAR in the Central African Republic that was funded in six month increments. And you can imagine 
Exactly. I mean, you can't even hire someone uh, for longer than six months because you can't give them a contract longer than the money you have. So your staff is going to get snapped up by all sorts of other projects happening in the place. You're, you're going to spend the first three months, you know, just sort of getting the operations off the ground, let alone see any sort of impact that you can, uh, you can report on. So, I mean, sustainability and long-term commitment also has to be in there as well. Um, certainly there are other principles that, uh, that I'd like to talk about, but maybe I think they're going to come up a little bit later. But I think part of the question also asked about in-kind versus cash. And I think for me, what I've seen recently um, in terms of an emerging trend in development and in, and in uh, emergency work as well, in humanitarian work, is this push towards away from giving things in kind. So, for example, in the CAR, you know, I oversaw some distributions of kitchen kits and blankets and mosquito nets. And those are very important, especially if the market isn't functioning, you know, after an earthquake or if the, the market is just, you know, if, if there's nobody there to sell any goods because it's too unsafe to go to the market or whatever. Um, certainly, sometimes material uh, goods are important. But I think more and more we're seeing that cash is very empowering. Um, in the Syria crisis in the neighboring countries, in Jordan, for example, the Red Cross and the Red Crescent, the Jordanian Red Crescent, had a huge program to give uh, preloaded debit cards to Syrian refugees who had come to Jordan. And in that way, it's, it, it's promoting dignity in the sense that people can decide what they want to spend their money on. Is it rent? Is it food? Is it clothes? What kind of clothes? Instead of aid agencies assuming, even if we've consulted 100,000 people, we're never going to get it right. We're never going to get everybody's needs right. So um, be moving beyond the assumption that we know what's good for everyone or what's good for the majority, I think cash is a really important and powerful tool that actually puts the control and, uh, and, and the choice back in the hands of people who may have lost a lot of control throughout their, uh, their, their experience living through conflict and emergencies. No, that's really interesting because I think that's something that I've been thinking about more and more is there is a certain feeling of power when you are able to spend money on mm. something. And especially for people such as the Syrian refugees who have lost everything that they know as home, mm. that they're able to give this... Um, they're able to get this chance to spend money on something um, allows them to feel a little bit more in control of at least one small aspect of their life, even if it's for a temporary period in their lives. And I think that's that's definitely one way that they could feel empowered. But of course, that's just one one step at a ladder. There's that's no by no means a, um, a concrete solution, but. Um, it's definitely definitely an interesting thing that you have seen this trend, um, and who knows? I mean, maybe that will change again in the future. Mm. But um, maybe, yeah. I guess it's it's only there's only time that will tell. Mm -hmm. There's there's always new development innovations, and you know, it, it's it, I think it's a really exciting industry, and I do call it an industry mindfully. Um, and because there are a lot of innovations that come forward, and a lot of technology, and a lot of new ideas, and some of them may not fly. Some of them may look really great on paper and, you know, a sexy new app might look great, but how practicable is it when you're like in the throes of, you know, the work? Um, but I, I, but I, I, I'm encouraged by the number of people who are putting heads together now. And I think, you know, getting back to the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, I think now is a really important moment 
for different actors to come together, um, not just in developing countries, not just people engaged in aid in development countries, but also in developed countries to start, you know, putting our resources together. I mean, this is the share economy, right? right. I'm, I'm personally not a millennial, you know how old I am, but, <laughs> but you know, there's, there's a lot of amazing things that have come uh, from, from this generation. I think, you know, I think, I do think the best is yet to come and I, I do remain optimistic. That's, that's great. It makes the rest of us feel a little bit better, I think. And <laughs> just, just to reiterate an important point that you'd shared before, um, it's not just, it shouldn't just be where, you know, if you're a donor country, you just give money to mm-hmm. a specific organi- or a specific country and you design the program for them. It's very important that the people of those countries, whether they are the government, whether they are citizens, whether they are uh, nonprofit organizations or whatever the case may be, they have to be active mm. um, decision makers in where that money should be spent. And I think that's probably one of the ways that we can figure out how to collectively um, decide how foreign aid will um, make a play in in helping a specific country develop. Um, and I think that's why that's why some people find it as a crutch because mm. you know countries give the money and then you know depending on um, the politics or how that how that country is run maybe the maybe the money isn't used wisely enough but mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and there's some thought around that as well I mean if you're interested Dembisa Moyo has a really interesting book called Dead Aid and it talks about sort of turning off the tap of development aid and sort of cutting off aid. Uh, like uh, money as aid, uh, so development countries can learn to stand on their feet. I mean, it's not as drastic as that. There's, it's quite a, a nuanced argument. But um, she has a TED talk. It's great. Um, but I mean, there's a lot of people uh, who who are arguing for this, and it's worked in some countries. I mean, Rwanda, for example, has dramatically clawed back the, the amount of aid that they receive. In fact, I'm not sure that they receive very much at all these days. Um, you know, and this, and I think we're seeing a lot more. Um, a lot more examples of, for instance, south-to-south uh, partnerships. Sure. Mm-hmm. So China, for example, is a huge uh, donor now. I mean, it, it looks a bit different than the traditional, you know, DFID or CETA or Swedish CETA or USAID. Um, it may look more like, uh, you know, economic partnerships and investment and trade and things like that. You also have Brazil, who's an emerging economy, who's also, don- uh, you know, giving a lot of money. And investing a lot in that region, certainly in places like Haiti and, and in Latin America. So I think we're seeing a lot of different modalities of how aid is even distributed and, 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 and given, which, which is also kind of exciting and interesting to watch. Yeah, yeah very interesting. Um, and now moving on to your experience with uh, violence uh, and uh, gender and violence prevention. Um, out of the countries that you've worked in, which one would you say was the most difficult for local women? And, you know, what can you talk to us about with uh, post-conflict aid for those uh, specific uh, groups? Mm. Part of the community, yeah. I think this is the question that I don't have an answer for. (laughs) I apologize. You know, I gave it a lot of thought, and I'm, I'm often asked, you know, what's the most difficult country that you've worked in? Or, you know, where is it the worst? And... It's really hard to say because women, of course, are not a monolithic group. We are not all the same. Um, you know, even if we are of the same uh, nationality, even if we are living in the same city or the same village, 
we may not be of the same ethnicity, we may not be married to the same man of different power, we may not ourselves have, you know, come from power in our families. So I think all of these things just play such a huge role. It's difficult to sort of make a generalization, but that having been said, <laughs> if I were to reflect back, um, there are a few instances where I've seen things in certain countries that will always be etched in my mind. Um, watching a man in rural Liberia, for example, uh, have an argument with his wife in full view of the entire village and ask that woman to uh, what's known there as pump iron or pump tires. So she has to put her hand on her head and, uh, and bend her knee several times, like doing calisthenics. But you can imagine how humiliating this is. So I wouldn't say that Liberia necessarily is on par in terms of uh, the rights and sort of the legal reform that's happening in Liberia and the sort of the consciousness around gender issues that happened after the war there. I think it's actually quite progressive in a lot of ways, not in every way, but in, in some. But, so, but an image like that will always make me think about what is really going on um, in, in, in the villages at the household level. You know, when we're, when we're moving beyond what's written, you know, in, in reports or, you know, they created this special court E to deal with uh, sexual violence cases after the war, which is, you know, held up as, as a model and a way to deal with sexual violence and gender-based violence. You know, and that's great on the one hand, but on the other hand, you still have men humiliating or this man humiliating his wife in public in 2010. So it's, it's difficult to say, you know, and then I think about the women that I didn't see in Yemen, you know, when I was myself not able to move around fully as a, as a white foreigner or as, as just a foreigner, as a female foreigner, um, walking in, in the streets of Sana'a or not walking in the streets of Sana'a as it were because I had to be, you know, flanked by my male colleagues and, you know, we weren't allowed to walk anywhere except the old city at that time. This was before this current outbreak of war. Um, and, and the women that I didn't see, it was all men on the streets. So women were virtually cut out of public life in, in that place. So I had no idea what's going on in homes. Um, certainly I've read reports and certainly I've spoken to my, my female colleagues, but that doesn't give me an, enough of an idea. Um, so I think... I think when we're thinking about sort of where is it most difficult for women to live, I think it's it goes back to understanding what are the different factors of identity that influence how a woman moves through her world and what how is that world colored? It's colored by the men and women in her life and of course non non-gender conforming people who might be in her life. It's informed by the society around her, the existing laws or the non-existing laws, is informed by the social and cultural values. And I mean, certainly we've seen in the West a huge onslaught of, you know, revelations recently in the media and all sorts of different industries around sexual violence, sexual harassment and intimidation that's been happening with the Me Too campaign and with, with you know, in, what's happening in the past two months. So I wouldn't count us out of that. Um, but certainly I think that women and girls around the world in general have, uh, I, I think their lives are colored more by, um, actually, can I stop there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I don't want, I feel like I'm getting into a territory <laughs> that I don't want to get into. <laughs> That's okay, no worries. Yeah. But again, like, you know, your feedback on that was very intriguing. Um, yeah. It's always good to kind of keep, keep that in mind about how, even though like there are like a post-conflict aid programs that are focused on gender equality, it's 
not like a done deal that it's going to mm. happen in those countries. There's so many other aspects you have to think about, like you said, culture, social values and norms and things like that. So, mm-hmm. And yeah. also what groups are being ignored by the way that we we conceive of aid. You know, we mm-hmm. think about gender equality as being between men and women. And certainly that was the language that was used under the Harper government. You know, that was what Canada's, you know, foreign assistance and our development looked like. You know, it used to be, you know, gender equality, then it switched to between men and women. But what does something like that do? It squeezes out people who don't identify as either men or women. Mm-hmm. Or what about inequality between different women? You know, in certain parts of the world, mother-in-laws hold huge amounts of power and are agents in violence against other young women. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's much more complex than just saying all women or all men. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm really happy to have conversations with people where it moves beyond that and we start to really sort of un, un, like peel back the layers of what does it mean to be a woman in this place, or a man for that matter. But maybe that's another conversation. <laughs> Um, and in your eyes, um, does post-conflict aid programming for peace building, um, impact on gender equality at all? Wow. It's like you're asking me to talk about my thesis before I've written it. (laughs) Um, I love this question. It is actually the central question of my doctoral work. Um, so the short answer is I have no idea. And the reason why I don't have any idea is because the way that, uh, aid projects are run, development projects are run, um, usually is that, I mentioned before, there's usually like a three to five year funding period, or maybe it's less, or maybe it's a bit more, depending on your funder, your donor. Um, but oftentimes the end evaluations happen very shortly after that. So if you have a gender equality program, or even a livelihoods program, or a water and sanitation program that has a gender equality component built into it, you know, gender mainstreaming, um, we may not see the long-term effects of that until much, much later. You know, gender equality is something that doesn't happen overnight. Vanita, you just mentioned, you know, it isn't just like it's a done deal, we can leave and go home. It's not like building a well or building a school. Um, you know, w- we need to think about all the, all, the, all the norms and all the values and all the attitudes that go into creating this inequality state in the first place in order to sort of unpack that and figure out, well, what would it take to move the needle closer to equality, to get women and men to be, um, to be perceived by each other as having equal rights and equal value and sure differences, of course, uh, but, but also, you know, moving towards that equality piece. Um, and I think what's largely documented in terms of project, in terms of project reports and evaluations is how well did a project do? And usually that's how many trainings uh, were delivered, how many women showed up to those trainings, how many men said that they enjoyed those trainings, how many women said that they enjoyed them. And those are great, and that's really important. But it says nothing about what happens five or ten years later. Mm-hmm. And it says nothing about how they then use what they learned in those trainings to transform their lives. And so my question uh, that I hope to explore in Sri Lanka is, you know, ten years after a conflict that attracted so much aid and so much attention and so much foreign intervention, Canadian and otherwise, um, what's really left over? And I think we have, some, we have some indication from some of the sort of academic literature that says even when women during a conflict can move in different spaces, you know, for example, people talk about female soldiers, women soldiers, and girl soldiers, unfortunately. Um, you know, look at them. They're, they're fighting alongside men. Isn't that gender equality? Well, maybe in that specific case, and maybe there's an argument to be made there, but what often happens after peace is negotiated and established or reestablished 
is that there's a sliding back. People want to establish what was there before, and often what was there before the war was not gender equality. I, I've yet to find a case where there, that, was, that was the case. Um, so while we have some indication that sort of institutions, donor agencies, NGOs, uh, even governments have rolled out great programs and, you know, have made on paper great strides towards, you know, promoting gender equality, we actually have very little idea of what exists on the ground in people's everyday lives and has there been a transformation or just a participation at a training. So I'm hoping maybe in four years I can come back yeah. and you can ask me the question again and maybe I'll have a better answer. I think that would be a wonderful opportunity. Do you think that there's a space for long-term monitoring and evaluation? Um, have you seen that in your experiences working abroad where um, you know, a specific organization that runs these sort of training programs to help gender equality or any sort of other development, sustainable or otherwise, um, have there been organizations that have come, you know, five years later and seen the impacts or what is what does it look like? I think there has been there have been some examples and that's usually where an NGO or, or another type of agency has a longer term presence. For example, you know, Oxfam in many places have been there for, you know, a couple of decades. I'm thinking in East Africa. Um, so they would have the luxury of sort of seeing over time what, what changes may have taken place. The question is whether the funding exists to conduct these kinds of evaluations. And they do cost money. I mean, it's not, it's, it sounds quite sort of facile and simple to say, you know, how many women or women told us this. You know, it sounds like, you know, you just load up your national staff and you send them out to the field for a couple of days, bring them back, and they've talked to a couple of people. But it, it actually requires a lot more resources. Um, and even that costs a lot of money in terms of staff time and transportation and everything that goes into it. So you'd really need um, a donor who is amenable to that and who uh, values that as well. But, but it does happen. I haven't seen so much... Um, I, I can't think of one at the moment in terms of an evaluation that happens sort of five, ten years later. Um, but what I do wanted to, what I did want to say is that I think there are some new innovations in monitoring and evaluation that move beyond this idea of a questionnaire or you know a focus group discussion, which are important tools. Um, but moving beyond that, for example, um, you mentioned at the top that I do some work with the Swedish Red Cross, and one of their methodologies that they use, and they didn't develop it, but they they've really taken it on, is um, this most significant change. So instead of trying to map all the different ways that your project has reached people and all the numbers and all the, the attitudes and feelings of all the people that you may have reached, which is, you know, very, it, that would be great, but it, it may not be realistic. You know, uh, participants and beneficiaries and local staff and international staff are asked to reflect on what do you think from your perspective, from your different perspectives, what's been the most significant change that's happened since this project was uh, rolled out in your area and in that way it's it's much more it can be more organic and it can be more it's, it's certainly moving away from numbers so it's less sort of quote scientific although there could be an argument to say that you know qualitative stuff is still scientific um, but it's it's much more it, it could be more useful um, luckily in Sweden uh, you know the, the main donor there CETA is is open to those kinds of measurements um, but uh, so far I haven't seen that have a huge pickup elsewhere. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, even with Green Corps, 
the, the program that Benita and I work on, um, you know, we run these monitoring and evaluation metrics and there is this tricky thing about how do you measure qualitative data such as that. I mm. mean, uh, you know, it's very easy for people to understand numbers and, okay, 90% mm. of these people enjoyed this training session, but um, at the same time, it shouldn't mean that we don't try and figure out a way to effectively measure qualitative data in a scientific way. I mean, you know, most significant change, that's extremely important. That That is literally the best way to hear how a specific program or training session has impacted someone's life. Um, and I think we need to actively work towards towards measuring that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always good to consider that not everyone has the same opinion. And yes, you can, you know, check mark that. Yes, I enjoyed this mm. training program. But what exactly did you enjoy? Mm -hmm. What exactly have you taken from that program that you're going to now implement in your own life, in your own situation and in your own community? Mm -hmm. That sometimes is very difficult to measure. And uh, so it's very interesting to hear that Sita, uh, like, you know, is open with this, with those which are across doing this kind of uh, research on the qualitative side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it comes back to, I think what you you hit the nail on it, which is, you know, it comes back to this idea of transformation versus just participation or inclusion. Mm -hmm. You know, anyone can show up to a training and get a snack at the end, maybe a certificate, and, you know, that looks great on a report. The number goes up by one or two or five. You know, but to get somebody to tell you how that impacted their life, it's, that's moving towards, you know, reporting on a transformation, which again takes a long time and isn't necessarily an overnight thing. It could be for some people. Some people get very inspired very quickly. They mobilize others. You can see some great progress. But oftentimes, especially at the, the sort of individual, the family, sort of the community level, if it's not... Um, you know, social, like people aren't mobilizing socially for a cause, if it's more how it impacts someone's personal individual life, that could be much, that could take much more time. So it's again the commitment to come back and to ask the right questions in the right way. Yeah. All right. Well, moving on, uh, we know you're Canadian and, uh, <laughs> you know, after you're like many times having, like, or after the time that you've been away from Canada and, uh, you know, abroad in so many different situations where like there you're dealing with different cultures and groups. How how do you evaluate the current engagement of the Canadian society in the global humanitarian issues such as gender and violence problems? That's such a good question. Um I first of all, I mean this podcast is is fantastic and I think it's it's platforms like this that really reach out and give people um so many different ways to connect with these issues. I mean, it's not it's no longer just what's on the six o'clock news or what's in a printed paper. You know, it's it's podcasts, it's it's, you know, all the different ways that people consume information. It's all over the internet. It's Facebook posts, it's GoFundMe pages, you know, so this gives me a lot of hope. Um, where we are as a Canadian society, I have to say, um, since I've come home, uh, I have been, I didn't know what to expect, and I think we talked a bit about this before we started rolling about how I felt very much like a fish out of water. I was very, I constructed my identity around being a foreigner for so long that I didn't know what it was like to be Canadian. And so when I came back, I almost had an anthropological perspective around, you know, what is a Canadian? What, what do people think and talk about? And, you know, and of course, what was on my mind at the time, having just left the Middle East, was, um, you know, conflicts in the Middle East, Syria, Palestine, Yemen, Iraq. 
Um, I didn't find that so many people were talking about it until the summer of 2014. And that's when Israel and Gaza kicked off that, that round of the conflict. And I have to say it was, um, it was pretty incredible to watch my Facebook feed blow up every single day. Maybe I shouldn't have used that, that euphemism, but, um, and you know, I was just bombarded with, again, apologies for the, for the terminology, but I was, I, there was just a, a flood of posts from both sides because of course I'd worked with, you know, all different kinds of people. I'd worked with the Palestinian Red Crescent. I'd worked with a little bit with the, the Israeli Red Cross, Mug and David Adom, but, um, and of course I had people, my Canadian colleagues and friends and family here who had very different opinions about whose side was right and what was going on. And I don't want to get into the politics of that, but it was, it was a very visceral experience to be in Canada, having just left the Middle East, having something happen back there that normally I would be maybe not on the front lines of, certainly not, but at least some sort of tangentially involved in terms of helping to shape the response. Um, and then having and then witnessing the debate that was happening here in Canada. And I think that was sort of my first wake up call in terms of what information is is most accessed, how people access that information and what do they do with it. And I think that's when I really understood the role of media. And I think that in terms of Canadian engagement on issues, I think that there's two parts. One, certainly Canadians have a responsibility to inform ourselves around, about what's happening around the world. And we have to inform ourselves uh, about what our government is doing in support of or to the detriment of some of these conflicts. Um, what is our role or what, what should be our role or where is our absence, our, our deafening silence in some cases. Um, but but I, I think that a big piece of that is what information is even available. And I think when Yemen hasn't made the papers, Yemen has been a raging conflict for the past couple of years and it's only in the last week or two that we've really seen it um, you know, scroll across the, the headlines on our news. And I think that that is shameful. And I think that, you know, there are dozens of other silent crises or silent wars or silent emergencies that are going on right now that we don't even know about. That having been said, I think Canadians are, by and large, um, hungry for information. And I think that especially youth, especially young Canadians, um, are much more globally engaged than I think we might give them credit for. Um, I'm part of, at my university, at the University of Ottawa, I was part of a group that put on uh, an event around the Sustainable Development Goals a couple of weeks ago. And yes, mostly development students, so a little bit of self-selection going on. But there were 200 students that showed up to talk only about the SDGs. So, and, and not all of them were development students. Some of them were in different fields. Um, I mean, and I think that that's such a, a huge testament to the hunger and the, the connection that Canadian students have or, uh, to issues around the world. And I think when we think about who, what does it mean to be Canadian? I mean, Canadians, you know, we have roots from all over the world, right? I mean, we're a very diverse population. We have connections and, and, and friendships and family, and we speak all these different languages. Of course, we're going to be interested in, in things outside of our borders. And I think that's something that we should, we should celebrate and we should promote. Um, and I think in contrast to, for example, our neighbors or even our you know, our, our, our European cousins, I think that it's, it's something that we should really protect and, and, uh, and, and certainly promote this awareness and, um, and education about what's going on around the world, because I think it's something that has really positioned Canada, not just in terms of policy, but also in terms of our public and our public engagement. Um, and I think that it's something that, um, that, that really sets us apart, and it's encouraging.
Yeah. When I talk to people, you know, I gave a talk a couple of years ago at my family's synagogue, and it was women of all different ages, mostly my mom's age. You know, I won't say how old she is, but let's just say my mom's age. <laughs> um, and I really didn't know what, what their reaction would be when I spoke about gender-based violence in the CAR, or I spoke about, you know, child protection in Haiti, or, you know, um, making a hospital safer for women and children and men to come in Nepal. You know, and the questions I received were incredible. They were, they were insightful. People could relate things to their own communities. And it was just, it was really encouraging. And that's the thing too, is that these issues, gender-based violence, violence in general, child protection issues, these things don't happen only over there. I mean, these are things that are happening as well in our own homes, in our own communities, in our own schools. And I think that uh, through making these links together, like as, as uh, a Canadian, as a Canadian public, I think that's I think it's really important to, to hold that as well in our minds. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, you've given some interesting perspectives on it. And you are right. Like even though we think more about what's going on like outside of our borders, there is also that interest like within our borders and what's going on like in mm. people's homes and things like that. So great, great, great. Uh, very interesting. <laughs> um, and so how do you think Canada's new feminist international aid policy uh, is going to affect, like, you know, gender and development, uh, given that some think that feminism can primarily be a Western construct? So it's a very loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I like loaded questions. That's great. Um, first of all, the, the notion that feminism is Western is always interesting. I think... Original, maybe not originally, but I think at a certain point in history, feminism looked like white American women, white Canadian women marching on the streets for, quote, women's lib. And I think that's what we think of when we think of feminism. I think we've come a long way. I think certainly third wave, whatever this wave is, I'm not going to, you know, I don't deign to call it what I, what I think it might be called, but it, it will have a name at some point. Um, I, I think that we're seeing that um, it's not just, feminism isn't a Western concept, it isn't just a white woman's issue. And I think that we've seen that um, in terms of other feminisms developing. In Africa, for example, there's womanism, and that was a direct result of, you know, African women saying, well, hey, we also have issues that affect our emancipation and our equality in our daily lives, but it looks nothing like a white Canadian or a white Canadian or a white European woman's struggle. Our struggles look very different. So. There's, you know, all these different strands of feminism that are really exciting and, and, have, and have popped up, um, not just in recent years, but in, you know, recent decades. Um, so I think when we think of feminism as being Western, it's sort of only looking at a corner of, of the whole picture. Um, you know, there are also other aspects of feminism. You know, there's post-colonial feminism and all sorts of things that, you know, I'm sure people have taken lots of courses on this and can talk better about this than I can. But... Um, I, I don't believe that feminism is a Western concept, um, although I will say that in some cases the way that feminism may be uh, interpreted and then applied in development may look a lot like that liberal feminism that I talked about earlier, the sort of how uh, Western white feminists have you know, understood uh, feminism. But I think that that is also changing. Um, and I think that feminists have done a lot of really good work to bring in other perspectives, you know, 
queer LGBTQ folks perspective, uh, racialized minorities, Aboriginal, Indigenous issues, you know, a whole bunch of things have happened uh, to, to expand the conversation. Now, the extent to which that gets translated into development policy and practice, that's, that's another question. And I think that brings us to Canada's FIAP, the Feminist International Assistance uh, Policy. So I will say that I'm very excited about it, only in the sense, well, first of all, in the sense that I think it is very exciting to be a Canadian at this time, in this era where um, other countries are pulling back and becoming more protectionist and becoming more nationalist. And here's Canada saying, actually, gender equality is a huge development issue and we need to do what we can to promote it. This is very exciting. Now, the way that we've gone about it may not have, the, or the way that it's interpreted and translated may not be the most effective. I think that this government has done a fantastic job of consulting. You know, civil society in Canada was consulted. I, I wasn't around for all of it, but I did attend one consultation and it was it was amazing. I mean, you had people from all different walks of government, all different types of NGOs here in Canada, um, people working on women, peace and security, and it was, it was very inspiring. Um, the end product, or rather what we have now that's known as, as the Feminist International Assistance Policy, however, has a few flaws. And the first one is that it focuses far too much, in my opinion, on women and girls, women and girls. It's almost so much that you can put those three words together into one word, which is not my idea, it's another scholar's, but so I won't take credit. But this women and girls syndrome that happens, you know, um, and this idea that by promoting women and girls economic independence and protecting them from violence, all very worthy causes, don't get me wrong, somehow this will end up with gender equality and the eradication of poverty. For me, there are a couple of logical leaps there. I mean, how does one end up with the other, you know, um, and isn't it just enough to say that we want to promote gender equality just in and of itself? Why does it have to be linked to other development goals? But that's maybe not the, the most pressing issue. For me, the most pressing issue is that it does very little to address the structural causes of this inequality. It's not just because women don't have businesses that they're not empowered or they, they're not equal with men. It's not just because they are you know, susceptible to violence more than perhaps men and boys in certain cases that makes them less equal or, or that perpetuates this inequality. It's, it's a bunch of other things that this policy just doesn't consider. The structural things that happen that I mentioned earlier, social values, um, it could be uh, the institutional structures, legal systems, uh, leaders who embody different opinions and values and you know, who lead other people to uh, maybe have like harmful uh, practices towards men, towards women. It's very, yeah, it's, it's, for me, it floats a bit on the surface. That being said, you know, I do think that it is, it, it is a step in the right direction. And I think, as I said, compared to what else is going on around the world, I'm very proud that we have a feminist international assistance policy. Yeah, no, I think it's, um, it is, it is definitely a very, very good step forward. I, I have to agree with that. Um, and you raise an interesting point. I mean, woman and girl syndrome, have I heard that definition before? No, but I can understand where it comes from. And I think um, it is interesting to consider because, of course, it's very important that we reach out and, and uh, you know, try and have more equality between 
women and men and uh, sorry women and men and mm-hmm. other um, non-conforming um, people um, but at the same time if you're speaking of between women and men or boys and girls boys and men can't be left out of that conversation mm-hmm. they need to be educated on why feminism why equality is something that needs to be worked on why um, you know there needs to be development in in women and girls education or women and girl in the work women and girl girls in the workplace um, if they're left out of the conversation I mm. think we're leaving a huge portion of the population that can work together with women and men or with women and girls and with the organizations and bodies that are trying to um, bring equality to them out of the picture and I think um, they are just as important uh, to being part of that part of that development and I mean it's really interesting uh, but yeah yeah I think you raise a really good point about the role of men and boys I mean we often think of gender as being synonymous with women you know oh gender issues are women's issues but actually men have a gender too boys have a gender and their gender uh, identities may not be the most productive they may be harmful as well I mean the the idea of what does it mean to be a man in many contexts looks like looks like violence it looks like uh, suppression of emotions it looks like a lot of things that I think men could benefit from being freed from you know not all men want to grow up to be Rambo or something equivalent to that so uh, but when you grow up in a in a society that encourages this sort of outward it, it doesn't even have to be physically violent, but this outward aggression or this, you know, dominant, uh, you know, aggressive uh, masculinity, I think that that's harmful not only to women, of course, women and girls, but also to the men and boys themselves. And I think that that's where this policy also falls short, is including men and boys only in so much as sort of cheerleaders for women and girls as they're going through their own process of equality, which, it, which, which is a little bit confusing. Yeah. The other point I wanted to mention about the FIAP, the, the Feminist International Assistance Policy, is that um, while it's really great politically and it, 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 um, it sort of puts a, uh, it, it sort of sets down a flag for Canada in terms of where we stand, in terms of our values, it actually materially doesn't give a whole lot of new funding, if any. Um, there's 150 million dedicated towards uh, supporting women and girls organizations or women's organizations, which is fantastic. But I don't think that that's new money. And there's also, I think, in there, um, there was recently as well uh, an announcement of 650 million dollars towards sexual and reproductive health, which is great, and which <clears throat> excuse me filled a gap that was left by uh, the Americans when they pulled out of certain commitments. Um, again, great, but also not new money. So. It's wonderful that we have this sort of rhetorical commitment to achieving these things, but without the finances attached to it, without the budget, I just question whether or not we're going to get there. Right. As everyone says, money makes the world go round. (laughs) We we can't do anything without that, unfortunately, at least in a tangible sense, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, or the way that money is set up in our lives. Um, Awesome. Well, I guess the last question that we would have for you is, um, what suggestions would you give to our listeners who are trying to pursue their own career? Uh, I get this question a lot, and I'm, I, I always wish I had sort of a nice, neat package that I could just sort of give out like a Christmas gift, and everybody would have a wonderful, fulfilling job. It, of course, it doesn't work like that. Um, a career in development, I always say everyone, 
Everyone who's worked in development has gotten there through a path that they have partially beaten themselves. So there's not sort of three or four different rows you need to travel down and just pick one and go. You know, you sort of have to be creative. Um, and, you know, and, and so much of it also depends on circumstance and who you meet and all those things. So I would say very practically, usually when people say, you know, I want to get more involved or I want to work in development, I would say, you know, follow what I call, it's a little bit cheesy, but I follow uh, the feel, learn, act methodology, which I've come up with. <laughs> it's not very, it's not very sophisticated, but basically figure out what issues you really feel passionate and committed and, or even angry about whatever makes, whatever elicits a feeling in you, you know, whether it's children's rights or whether it's um, environmental sustainability or whether it's, it's general, you know, poverty eradication, whatever it is that really gets you going, it gets your blood boiling, figure out what that is. Um, Cause passion is what's going to drive you forward. This can be a very rewarding career, certainly, um, maybe not always financially, but certainly in terms of you know values and experiences and all that stuff, you can be very rich in that. Um, but what will drive you is your passion, your commitment. And if you don't have those things, maybe rethink whether or not you want to work in development or humanitarianism. The second thing is then learn. So this is where you do your homework. Um, I really like the website Relief Web, but there are certainly tons of other places where you can find clearing houses of jobs. Um, and take a gander at who is doing what kind of work that you might want to be involved in. Uh, who are the major players? Who are the minor players? What kind of um, work do you want to do? Is it sort of at headquarters policy stuff? Or is it more like on the ground, living in a bush, you know, waking up day to day and having your project in front of you? Or is it something in between? Um, and have a look, even if, you, even if you're just starting, I would say have a look at the TORs, the terms of reference, and what they're looking for in a candidate. And that way you can sort of guide your path in terms of what you might want to do next. If they want field experience, think about maybe volunteering um, or, you know, maybe that study abroad that you did is going to come in handy that you can use. Or, you know, maybe think about uh, working for another organization in a country or in a context that you may want to get more involved in. And also part of the learning is figuring out who is doing the good work. And by good work, I'm saying... Um, you know, this, this might be a bit of a judgment call for sure, but talk to people and see who they respect and they think is doing good work. Not all NGOs, not all development organizations are created equally. Some of them may look great on paper, but you get to the field and they're in complete shambles. And I mean, like <laughs> that actually might be the case for many, but that doesn't, you know, but, um, you want to be working with an organization that that's ethical and that's founded on principles that resonate with you. Um, there are certainly some like industry standard principles in terms of, you know, the humanitarian principles, uh, independence and partiality and things like that. Um, and then, and then, yeah, talk to as many people as you can to find out who's doing the work that you might want to be doing and, you know, who might be interested in using you and your skills. And the third thing then is the act. So that's where you put your stuff into motion. You know, sign up for that, that e-course or learn that language. Uh, and language is a really big one. If, if you speak only English like I did when I started, um, you may find yourself at a, at a huge disadvantage to somebody who speaks a couple of other languages. Um, and if you were going to pick one, pick one that would get you working in a place that you're interested in. So no use uh, learning Spanish, of course, if you're not interested in working in Latin America. By the same token, Arabic is a wonderful language to learn, um, but also be realistic in terms of how fluent you may be able to become after a short amount of time. But languages are always a worthy pursuit. Um, so that's sort of my, my feel, 
learn, act framework. And then the other thing I would say is be really creative. Um, get yourself in rooms with as many people as you can. Go to mixers, you know, ask for ask people out for coffee. People are very generous with their time, especially if you're asking for advice instead of a job. So if you're asking for a job, people may not be so willing to meet with you. But if you frame it as, I want to know some more information about your organization or about your path to doing the work that you're doing, people will usually give you an hour of their time. Um, I certainly have uh, many, many times. Um, and then, yeah, and just, and, and good luck. Um, like I said, it's, there's no single path to get to, to the field or to get that perfect first job, but maybe there isn't a perfect first job anyway. The other thing that I will say, I'll share that helps me is that with each, each job that I, um, that I went to, I would sit down and really think about what are the sort of three to five things that I wanted to be doing in this job. And it didn't necessarily have to be specific. Like, I want to work for UNICEF in this office in New York doing this file. No, that's probably not going to work. But if you say things like, I want to work in a headquarters or I want to work in a rural environment and I want to be working in this language and I want to be working on these types of issues that may help to sort of put some things in motion in terms of weeding out um, or, or rather like helping to determine who to talk to, who to contact. It'll just help you in your search and keep you a bit focused. And good luck. Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a jungle, but you'll get there. Well, I, that was definitely very valuable advice, I must say myself. Um, and the people who are listening, I hope that helps you for sure. And I have to give the credit to these questions, which uh, ended up developing a very interesting conversation and maybe have raised more questions than <laughs> answers, but that's a good thing, um, I think. Um, and I have to give, we, we have to give that credit from UNI Canada to our Green Corps participants. Um, they read your bio, Jessica, and they were very interested in the work that you did. Um, we tried to put as many questions in this podcast as we were able to. Um, so definitely thank you all for who have submitted questions and who will be listening to this. And Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. Benita and I definitely enjoyed the conversation and um, I hope our listeners will as well. Um, yeah, and awesome. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And uh, can, best of luck with the podcast. I think this is fantastic. Any way to reach more Canadians, more youth, more motivated people who are going to change our world, the better. So good stuff, guys. Awesome. And thank you for listening, everyone. And please remember, just, just keep, keep greening. greening.